the presenting sponsor of Top Ducks is Netflix, now presenting the documentary series Harry and Meghan. From award-winning director Liz Garbus, the Boston Globe calls Harry and Meghan a fascinating look into a profoundly rarefied way of life. Emmy eligible for outstanding documentary or nonfiction series. A group of teenagers in South Carolina go out for a fun night on their boat, but it turns tragic when the boat crashes into a bridge. This event ends up unraveling the life of Alex Murdoch or Alec Murdoch and his family's stronghold over the small town of Hampton for the last century. That's executive producer Michael Kasparo talking about the Murdoch murders, a Southern scandal. Michael and director Julia Willoughby Nason join me to discuss their three-part Netflix documentary. As we discuss, the series certainly works as true crime, but it also explores intergenerational relationships and social status in a changing rural Southern County. If you enjoy this conversation, please do follow the pod and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Top Docs Pod. And now my conversation with Julia Willoughby Nason and Michael Gasparo about the Murdoch murders. Julia and Michael, welcome to Top Docs. Hi. Hi. And a spoiler alert to anyone coming to this, if you do not know what happened in the trial of Alex or Alec Murdoch for double homicide for the killing of his wife and child, then you'll definitely want to check that out, watch the series, and or uh, check it out on Google before you listen to this conversation, because there will be spoilers. All right. Your three-part series, The Murdoch Murders, covers a number of crimes associated with the Murdoch family, a prominent dynasty in a rural county in South Carolina, proverbial big fish in a small pond. There's the discovery of a young man dead on the highway in 2015, the death of a housekeeper in 2018, the drowning death of a young woman in 2019, the tales of remarkably brazen and systematic theft from very vulnerable people over several years, perhaps partially fueling a raging Oxycontin addiction, all culminating in 2021 in the double homicide. And then amazingly, even after that, a strange maybe hoax suicide, maybe entrapment, who knows what was going on there. It's an incredible range of things. That being said, there's so much more going on here. You folks are also, I think, really showing this intricate intergenerational series of relationships. You're really demonstrating sociologically the social hierarchy of this town. There is a ton going on. And the first episode, Where's Mallory, then focuses, though, really on the boating accident in which young Paul Murdoch, the scion slash black sheep of this family, inebriated, runs his boat into a bridge, injuring nearly all his passengers and drowning Mallory Beach. You managed to interview all the surviving members of the boat accident and maybe all their parents too, and the parents of Mallory Beach as well. But before we get to that crime scene, I have no problem with straight true crime. I really enjoy it, but I'm really interested in series that attempt to transcend that a bit. I'll Be Gone in the Dark is a great example of one that tries to tell a story of matrimonial love and devotion, other kinds of devotion. And what's really interesting here is that interweaving, all that sociological stuff. So let's talk first. Can you just tell us a bit about the Murdoch family? Murdoch family's place in this town. Maybe just a little bit of the history, a little bit of a sense mm -hmm. of why they're so prominent. 
So the Murdoch family are four generations of solicitors. The senior Murdoch started the law firm in 1910 in Hampton County. He made his money first in fertilizer chemicals and then started this law firm. It didn't even have a sign on the door. It was just word of mouth. And through his inroads into suing the railroad that went through South Carolina in Hampton County, he was able to find a niche of personal injury that catapulted him and then his son and former sons to be prestigious lawyers in the area and specializing in the underdog, representing the underdog plaintiffs who got hurt by big corporations, big corporate interests the family was known to go up against. So by the time we get to Alec Murdoch, it's ironic that he came down the way he did when his family was for the underdog, when we found out that Alec Murdoch was stealing from the underdog in the end. That's a great point. And I think it's really important to understand that because of the nature of the way the South Carolina system works, the Murdochs and their associates are on both sides of the law, right? They're the representatives, but they're also the prosecutors. Exactly. Right. A striking point of the Murdoch family and their legal dynasty, as people like to say, is that they held both sides of the law, the personal injury side of the law, the civil side of the law, and the criminal side of the law being solicitors, which are essentially district attorneys in the area. They had so much power over the judges, over law enforcement, over juries. And it was over, what, 100 years, basically, of holding that power. With that in mind, let's jump into what really dominates, I'd say, the, definitely the first segment and in some ways the first half of your series, which is this boat ride. Let's talk about that. Who's on the boat? Where are they coming from? Where are they going? As the story goes, Paul... And Morgan, Morgan Dowdy was dating Paul Murdoch at the time. You had Anthony Cook and Connor Cook, who are cousins. Anthony had just started dating Mallory Beach, who was the other young person on the boat. Connor was dating Miley. So they decided that earlier in the day that they were going to get together and pick up some drinks, get on this boat and go to an oyster roast which is something that we've learned along the way is it's really common. Families and friends get together and they roast oysters and drink and hang out. They wanted to take the boat to this party. That's how the night began. And they went to this party and they were drinking, got to the oyster roast. They ended up going to a bar and then headed home. And on the way home is when the tragedy stuck. That's when the boat crashed into a bridge. You could have started so many different places, right? You could have started with the earliest events. You could have started with the culminating murder. You start here on this boat ride. And I felt a little bit like it just becomes this crucible of all the people and a lot of the problems that were implicit in the whole situation. Can you talk about why you wanted to really focus really for the first half of your series on the boat ride? For us, it was, there's so many different places you could go with this. Obviously the history is fascinating and there's all these different stories, but we felt that the boat was the centerpiece of this story. And without that boat crash, who knows? I think that Alec Murdoch just keeps going along, um, doing his thing. And this was the pinnacle moment that basically opened up everyone's eyes and people just were like, had it. And that's when things started to fall apart. So for us, it was like, one, these kids are super relatable. It's an event that happens that's common to a lot of people. 
it's unusual to see documentaries that are through 18 year olds eyes. And there was just many different reasons why we went through this, but we felt like this was the beginning of the end for this family. And it was just this really relatable moment that a bunch of kids innocently are going out and hours later, everyone's lives have been turned upside down. The other thing is, I think that the reason why it's notable is because of the crash. And the reason the crash happened was because Paul, the younger of the two brothers, is drunk, as he often is, right? And when he's drunk, he's a different person. He's more stubborn. He's combative. He's even abusive to Morgan, which we learn with time on the boat. His friends even gave him the sobriquet Timmy to describe this kind of different personality. And I think there's hints here that this is something below the surface here, right? One of the parents suggests that such drinking reveals that there's probably something going on at home. His drinking seems to mimic what we find out later about his father's Oxycontin addiction. I definitely think that's at play here too. Yeah, definitely. That is at play. There is underlying trouble at home, let's say, that Paul seems to be numbing out with alcohol as a young kid. And his friends actually speak to that. And Morgan's parents speak to that. Like you said, like you don't drink this much if everything's straightforward at home. You're covering up some sort of pain. We show images of him, both photos and video of him when he is drinking, when he's drunk. And you can't but notice he totally changes. His face changes completely. Anthony, his friend, will go on a long discussion of what that stare means. But I'll tell you, when the lively face that I saw before and the face I saw when he was drinking, that second face reminded me of his father a lot. He looks more like his father when he's drunk, it seemed like to me. There's a definitely similarities there. And there's a video that was played at the trial of Paul filming him in Snapchat of him basically tugging on a tree, if you really look at his face, he looks really out of it and just disoriented and he's touching his head. And there's definitely this similarity of some kind of place that they've gone after using. He becomes a completely different person. And what's amazing about it is and to touch on the other questions, the family just was okay with it or bailed them out of it. And instead of trying to get him help or anything like that, they just basically just let him do this and continue to do it. And we've learned since that he continued to do it right up to his death. One of the fascinating things to watch in the course of this series is the kind of the seduction of Morgan, Paul's girlfriend, if that's the term they use. My kids don't. It's curious to see that she's not only brought in the spell of Paul, but the whole Murdoch family. She sort of becomes our stand-in. We get initiated into her world. Morgan is our touch point into the inner world's of the Murdochs. She dated Paul for many years when they were younger. In a way, she was gonna be the next in line. She was gonna be the next Maggie and she was gonna potentially marry Paul. People get married young down there. It's a conventional family. So she was really able to speak to what she saw during those years there and in quite a intimate way. It, as the series progresses, we also catch glimpses of the darker side, right? We hear pretty early on that the Murdochs are serving alcohol to Paul and his friends as they were minors, both at home and actually at their law office, which is just amazing. And his parents, as you said, laughed when Morgan tried to say, I think Paul's out of control when he's drinking. They just thought that was funny. It's only quite a bit later, though, we learn about this very particular thing that Morgan heard early, which is that they were very dismissive in a terrible way about the death of the young man found in the road, Stephen Smith. He sprinkled these revelations along. Can you talk about how you structured kind of that slow reveal? 
we wanted to build up the fact that this family felt untouchable and invincible and the hubris involved with giving young kids alcohol, even out of the back of their own law firm, showed just how much they you know could make things disappear on every level of law enforcement and any accountability out there. So when we tee that up in that way around the drinking and the jovial qualities of like minimizing certain things that could be having boundaries between parents and kids all the way to them joking callously at the dinner table about murdering Stephen Smith and just the murder of Stephen Smith, whether it was them doing it or not. But just to have like this blase cavalier attitude was pretty haunting. Yeah, it certainly is. Really like one device you use, which is this car ride we take with Morgan. We've already visited a lot of the places that she shows us in through more established and or drone shots. So we don't see the Mazelle estate with her. We only see the driveway. We see the Murdoch law offices kind of at an angle, an angle I think that makes them look less commanding than the frontal straight on shots we've seen. She's just bringing us to like the edges of their law office of Moselle in the car, looping us around. We're going for a ride with her, but we're building that tension where we don't bring you totally inside because there's danger inside. And also, I think there's a sense of kind of a fall from that world. Like she's an outsider now to the world she was once an insider in. And you had three, four, maybe major sit downs with her over time. And I was struck by the change in her appearance. And I'm only bringing this up because I think it is a little striking. Well, over time, her hair seems to be maybe a more natural color. She seems to be wearing less kind of formal where she's wearing torn jeans. I think it's towards the end. It felt like it was towards the end. Did you sense a change in her over the course of your interviews with her? Or was that just fashion for the day? Yeah, no, I think that she went through an experience with us. She had never spoken about this in public. We were the first person. She's only sat with one group and that was with us. You know, she said it was therapeutic for her. She's still going through a process. And we went through that with her. And I think that was part of the thought and the ideas that she's talking about a tragedy, part of this family. And then she's talking about the abuse and coming off in a different, more powerful way and owning it. And she has multiple sides to her. And we thought it was important to show all those sides. Yeah, you really get a broader sense of her. I think that's true. Towards the end of episode one, we return to the boating accident. And this time, you give us a real like TikTok, you know, step by step recounting the events, often with a timestamp. And then in episode two, the Moselle murders, you walk through this again, but this time we're looking at it through the eyes of an attorney hired by Mallory's family, Mark Tinsley. And this time, I'd argue we get a sense of a web, a web nearly of conspiracy surrounding the events of the aftermath. Can you talk about what you were trying to accomplish by repeating the TikTok through Mark's eyes? In the beginning of that, of the incident of the boat crash, we kind of want to to live through the kids' eyes and how chaotic it was and how it's things are swirling. There's no grounding. You're literally drowning in the water. A boat is smashing up against a bridge. And so when we go back to it through Mark Tinsley's eyes, who's their attorney, he's able to dissect all the components of the physicality of the crash, the forensics, as well as the psychology of the crash, the class system within the kids on the boat and how the power structures at play could become motive in terms of who's to blame for who is driving. So we really wanted to have those different angles to come in and out of the boat, even if we brought the viewer in twice. 
in the first half of the series, as we suggested, it's sort of held together by this frozen in time moment, the focus on the boating accident. The second half of the series basically accelerates and spreads out as the number of crimes and potential crimes are explored. We're not going to be able to talk about all those, but I'd really like to speak about Gloria Satterfield. We hear about Gloria in two ways. One is explicitly, and one is sort of obscured. By the way, the depiction of Stephen Smith is handled similarly, I think, too. So first, we hear directly about Gloria as a longtime housekeeper for the Murdochs, who basically took care of Paul when he was a young child, because his mother was more interested in the older child, Buster. And then, at the same time, interspersed, we hear a few times before the final episode, we hear a 911 call from a woman who is maybe a bit belligerent, privileged, and berating the 911 operator. Uh, in describing a purported accidental tripping of a woman. It's only in the third episode, I think, it's only when it became clear to me that these were the same person, that this injured woman was Gloria Satterfield. Can you talk about how you structured that sort of revelation? Gosh, I think the structure was a dance that we were doing for months and months. Obviously, the story is vast. It's a massive story. There's so many different places to go. And it was tricky to navigate but we were really obsessed with the Gloria story because we had a piece of information that nobody had or had been out there, which was that Alec Murdoch was never on the scene. So we wanted to handle it with care. We wanted to introduce, there have been many different versions of these episodes and how to get it across so that the viewer can watch it and follow it because it can be tricky. And it was tricky even for us while we were making it. But for Gloria, it was important. And we had to basically get this information through a private investigator that was actually working on the Stephen Smith case. But through that, got information from somebody that had never been interviewed. I guess a handyman would be his title, um, who is there. It was important for us to tell this and find its own section. The only place for it was in episode three, just the way the episodes lined out. But that was a tricky thing to navigate because of the information we had, this insurance call that we had, and piecing them together so that an audience could follow it and understand that, hey, this story is out. Alec Murdoch basically said he was there. Gloria spoke to him. You could do a deep dive on it as a, doing a podcast where you can then talk about how the lawyers came together, they took money, then people represented them and do all these things. At the end of the day, everyone went off the fact that Alec said that Gloria said that the dogs had tripped her. And the truth is the dogs never tripped her. He was never there. That was a long-winded answer, but it was finding the, the right episode, making sure we told it correctly and that you could follow it and understand what was happening. You do it so well. And it's such an important story because it ties together Paul, Alec, uh, his mother, Maggie. Maggie. They're all in this. And then Gloria Satterfield and her family and the thefts and the potential murder. When it's revealed, it works well both intellectually, but also it's a gut punch and not in a cheap way. So kudos on that. It really ties the whole series together. Thank, um, you. Thank you. So let's talk about the importance of rumor. This is tricky, right? Because if you're working in the documentary space, especially in kind of a journalistic bent of the documentary space, rumor is tough. Rumor is like powerful and yet a little tricky. But boy, this town, like you have this example of where the teacher hears about the boating accident. He doesn't hear from the radio, or the TV or the local paper. Issues of local papers today, which may be part of the problem here with Alex, or the internet hears it at church, right? So can you talk about rumor in this town and how you worked with it? 
It's a good one. <laughs> Julia could start. I have come. Can I talk about rumor in this town and how to be like everyone, the question of every documentary we do? Yeah. Um, yeah, no matter if it's watch. like the biggest city in the world. Yeah, small town everywhere. First of all, when we try to understand a story, we want to get people to speak first person to their experiences. We want to really make sure if something's a rumor, we're letting the viewer know that. And we're not just taking things face value because there is inherently so much rumor, especially in a small town, since everything is word of mouth. Yet this story was kind of, you know, sifting through a lot of rumors. And just, I think DeWitt, Mike says, you hear a rumor a couple of times, you hear it more times as a journalist, you start believing it. So we threw that concept on the table for the viewer to decide and run with what the patterns that we are trying to show. And the rumors start, our character said it so many times, we had to edit it out and we probably could have named one of the episodes. Rumors spread like wildfire in the low country. <laughs> it was like every, every, every person said it. But, you know, specifically to probably Stephen Smith, because that was six years earlier. It's a small town. There were rumors, but what we leaned on was that it was, the name was in police documents. And we went to that and we would say, this name was in this police document. This was in this police document. You have to have some kind of touchstone when it comes to that. But yeah, you're dealing with, especially a story that's gone cold for years and years, you're dealing with a lot of rumors. And I think our characters spoke to it too. We had them speak to that. Even the private investigator, I think, said that he's dealing with rumors. A friend of Stephen Smith who had said the rumor was you know, this. So it's tricky. It's part of the storytelling, especially with this one. I think one thing that really struck me watching this was you're in a small southern town, but everybody, almost everybody, except maybe a judge who was presiding over Alex's case, all the participants, all the working people, the housekeeper, the everyone seemed to be white. And this is a little surprising because in the South, in South Carolina, there are plenty of people of color. There's certainly a strong African-American tradition. And if you've been to small rural areas in the South, you might be surprised. There are often strong Latinx communities there as well, often doing some of the hard work that happens there. I do want to point out there is a diversity of social class, and that's interesting too. It's interesting that Paul did not stick to the upper branches, it seemed, of the social stratosphere. He had a range of folks of different social worlds, but I thought it was interesting how white the faces seem to be in this in the series. Not a criticism, just a statement. Yeah. I can tell you straight up, because Hampton is probably, I think, 60% African-American. This came down to, honestly, people that were willing to go on camera and who weren't, because it wasn't for a lack of trying. It is a very diverse town, Hampton itself. You just go through a yearbook. It was a tricky process to get anybody to go on tape, to sit down. And understandably, you have people that are living in this small community. We were there. We stick out. I'd walk into a coffee shop, you know, the bell would go ding, and I'd walk in and people would just turn and look at me like I was an alien. So you have to imagine these people go to church together. They go to the Piggly Wiggly together. So it was one of these things that we had to be really careful and try to get people to get on tape and sit. And this was one of those things that people just didn't want to do it. If they weren't directly involved, and there's something that we didn't explore in these episodes was the amount of, Julia touched on a little bit about how this firm and how the Murdochs sort of gained power. There's a lot of favors that happen, a lot of favors with lawyers and judges and police. And, hey, you do this for me, I'm going to do this for you. 
many people that we tried to get in the chair had no interest. And remember, this was before he was charged with murder. We were on the ground in 2021, September. It was tough to get anybody to talk to us. I think that was probably part of some of the issues to get a diverse interview with people. In the wake of the recent trial and conviction of Alex, I don't know if you are still in touch, especially with, say, Morgan and Anthony, who are people probably really are, who get to know, we get to understand their pain the most. Do you have any sense of how they have responded to that outcome of the trial? We're still in contact with them. I communicate with Morgan a lot, check in on her. I think that there is, not to put any words in their mouths on how they feel, but they're still coping with everything. It's a really traumatic thing to go through. And I, I don't think that they feel like the verdict, they have any closure from it. I would guess that not everybody also fully maybe wants to believe that he did this because of the person that they knew and how he was with his son and his wife to an extent. I'm sure there's mixed feelings. You two, I think, probably both worked together on fire fraud. Is that right? Yep. That was a documentary about a fraudulent festival, the fire festival a few years back. I have to say that while we know that many people were economically hurt by that and there were real chances of physical harm that could have happened, Honestly, some of the appeal of that is is something delicious about the comeuppance of these <laughs> fancy people. There's a little bit of sort of right there for sure. I wonder, is there any thread line for you as you were watching kind of the fall of the Murdochs? Did you see any continuity there in the stories we're telling? Between fire fraud and, and this? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Julia. White uh, straight males doing bad things? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be obvious, but. Who are the influencers? Uh, there's one. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of social media which was a huge component in this. In our show, I mean, it, the social media was a big component with the boat wreck and also a big component in the murder trial. So fire fraud and social media influencer situation platforms and the kids on the boat and Paul Murdoch's phone, those things are definitely in our generation comparable. But one is crime without murder with Billy McFarlane and the other one is murder and other crimes. What's similar too is just the power structures of hubris of patriarchy, white straight male patriarchy and getting away with things and having no accountability for years and years. And it's a matter of time when all that comes to a head, which it always does. And also the people that help them get there because they're not doing this alone and there's enablers in both of these stories. And by the way, just a side note, we've seen a lot of documentaries really recently try to work in social media and sometimes it's disruptive. I think you do a great job here. It feels very integrated. It feels like you're seeing the connections between the people. It doesn't just seem like it's popping up wildly. Tinder Swindler does this very well too. And I know that's a lot of work. I think we take it for granted. It's not like you can just take a picture of a phone and do this. It's, it's a bunch of rushes and work you had to do to make that happen. Yeah, it's a balance for sure. So it doesn't take away from what you're seeing. And I think that's something we're really cautious of too and we're putting it together. Do you folks want to, I know sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, Talk at all about what's up next for you? We had just a bunch of projects that haven't made public announcements yet. We're still working in the same echelon, same caliber, same gist of investigative reporting with a cultural zeitgeist spin that hopefully can continue to resonate with audiences and become the number one shows on every platform in the world. <laughs> Yeah, we do. We have one on some other network, not to be named, called Shiny Happy People. That's currently on. 
about IBLP and through the lens of the Duggar family. Thank you for this. I mean, I want to emphasize this works as true crime, if you will, but it's definitely transcends that. It doesn't have to, it's fine as true crime, but it transcends it. And I think it really is revealing about intergenerational relationships. I thought that was really powerful here. And also the depiction of a rural part of the South. I lived in Georgia for a while. I taught at Georgia Tech and met people from all over the South. I think you did a great job of explaining kind of the small town world, the world of rumor, the world of religion. The one thing these folks say, all I could do is pray. And I think you really capture them and do so in a way which is respectful. The folks, well, obviously being very clear about the Murdochs. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, Michael. Have a great summer, folks. Yep, you too. each have a hidden gem documentary film that you don't think gets the attention that it deserves. One of the most powerful documentaries that I've ever seen is called Silver Lake Life. It's about a man who is documenting his partner dying of AIDS. I don't know if a lot of people know about it, at least in the circles I'm in in documentary film over the last 10 years. I've never heard one person mention it. And it's one of the most powerful films I've ever seen. That's why Julie and I work well together. I'm glad because I'm going to something completely polar opposite. <laughs> and I'm going on the fact that I just watched it. And if you asked me last week or two weeks, it would be different. But I just watched this Smartless doc series about Jason Bateman, Will Barnett, and Sean Hayes. I didn't even know about the podcast, but I guess it happened during the pandemic, but someone reached out to me like, you should watch this. They said, you're basically a mix between Will Arnett and Jason Bateman's personality. And then I watched it and it was just them making fun of each other basically for six episodes and talking about food. But I loved it. It was amazing. For middle-aged guys like me, it's like Sex in the City. Are you a Will or are you more a... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's um, exactly right. Yeah.